Hey, it's Daryl. As we get started, I wanted to let you know about a new course that I just released last month, and it is called Helping Others Grow. And if you are interested, uh, I want to give you a special coupon for podcast listeners, and the code is PODCAST21, PODCAST21, and that will get you $10 off the course Helping Others Grow. If you're interested, go to gospelforlife.com, and you can find out more information there. Okay, that's it. Let's get started. Welcome to the Gospel for Life podcast. We help churches make disciples. And now, here's your host, Daryl Dash. Welcome to the Gospel for Life podcast, a podcast all about helping churches make disciples. This is our first episode, and I can't think of a better guest than Trevin Wax. Trevin is Senior Vice President for Theology and Communications at Lifeway Christian Resources. He blogs at the Gospel Coalition, and he's written a number of really helpful books, including Eschatological Discipleship, Leading Christians to Understand Their Historical and Cultural Context, and, most recently, Rethink Yourself, The Power of Looking Up Before Looking In. My general rule is that if Trevin writes it, I read it. And I couldn't be more thrilled to have him as our first guest. So, Trevin, welcome. It's great to be here with you, Daryl, and thanks for that that kind word of introduction. And did I get your title right at Lifeway? That's right. Okay, yes, excellent. Well, man, Trevin, I've really appreciated your writing ministry, and I think I've met you once in person, but you're one of the guys I just appreciate following and reading. And I wanted to begin by asking you about your book, Eschatological Discipleship. It's more academic than many of your works. I've noticed you have the skill of writing for both academic audiences and also for the popular level. Could you explain how you decided to write that book? Well, it's actually a book that's related to another book that I wrote a few years ago called This Is Our Time. When I was doing PhD work at Southeastern Seminary in North Carolina for several years, I knew that I wanted the bulk of my research and my writing, my dissertation, to focus on this idea of eschatological discipleship, the, the worldview question, what time is it, and why it matters for the Christian life. And so I, I worked on that. I, I gave a, a good year, basically, to that, to that project and working uh, through the dissertation and getting all of that done. And then immediately after writing that, for, for school, I knew I wanted to translate it down, so to speak, so that the concepts from that book would be accessible to the ordinary Christian, the Christian who's going to church and reading their Bible and wanting to follow Jesus in this world that we're living in, but may not be as academically minded. So I wrote This Is Our Time, as, as sort of taking all of those those profound and rich and academic concepts that I learned, I was able to write This Is Our Time, really more for just anyone in church that would benefit from those concepts without necessarily using some of the the academic language and jargon that I have in, in eschatological discipleship. But it was after This Is Our Time came out that there was there were questions about going deeper into some of those concepts. And so I decided, well, I, I guess I could take some of that work that I had done and dust it off and present an academic version as well. And so that was what became eschatological discipleship. It became a revision of work that I had done over the course of a year or two 
so that I might be able to, to to share that with an audience who would be interested in going deeper into some of those concepts. Although it's more academic, it's it's certainly accessible. So if anybody's interested in reading it, I would encourage them to do so. Trevin, I want to ask you more about that concept of what time is it, uh, which is both in probably your last three books are centered uh, to differing degrees around that. I think you wrote at one point, what does obedience and faithfulness look like in this particular time? I'm not used to hearing that as a key discipleship question. So could you unpack why that is an important question that we should be asking? Well, the big worldview questions that, that frame up our understanding of discipleship that often are considered are, are the big questions like, who are we as human beings? You know, where do we, where have we come from? Which is a question about our history, about being created in God's image. The, the question of what time is it, asking that question is, is one in which it, it, orient, it orients us immediately to the, the gospel, the past, what Christ has done for us in the past on the cross. But it also orients us to the future. Uh, where is history going? What is the future of the world? A lot of the debates and a lot of the discussions that happen in society today have an, an implicit calendar associated with them. There's this, this idea, for example, it may be the Enlightenment calendar, that we are in a, in a world in which we have shed the silly, superstitious, religious beliefs of the past, and now we know we have, we have science to thank for, for the uh, progress that's being made, and so now we look to the future and we are moving in toward, toward this, this new kind of progress and a new kind of enlightenment. These are calendars or ways of viewing history, ways of viewing the way the world is going that are, are not always stated explicitly, but are underlying a lot of the worldviews of people in our society. And so when we ask the question, what time is it? We're asking the question, what calendar are we living by? What is the implicit understanding of history that is underneath our actions, that helps to guide the actions that we take in the present? And asking what time is it also means that we, we, we need wisdom. We, we've, we've got to have wisdom to know what does faithfulness look like in this moment, because we, we don't, as Christians, simply repeat the things that were done in the past by our forefathers and mothers in the faith, but neither do we simply look to the Bible as a, a, a rule book that gives you the correct answer, the correct action in every circumstance. The Bible is a book that orients us to the future, tells us what history is, show that we, we find our place within the grand narrative of Scripture, and it's within that, relying on the Holy Spirit, that we then are to discern what is the best course of action in any given situation. And so that is why I think the question, what time is it, is very important. It's not because ethics change from culture to culture, but because the, the right and wisest course of action is not always a thou shalt do this or thou shalt not do that from the Lord. Many times the wisest and best course of action is one that is only received through prayer and the cultivation of wisdom and discernment. And that worldview question thrusts that responsibility onto us. So Trevin, do you think that the reason we don't ask that question many times, or maybe we assume it, is 
maybe we're not steeped in church history enough and aware of the cultural movements that are shaping us. Do you think it's that? Or why do you think that we tend to neglect that question? What time is it? Well, I think we tend to think of Christianity often as timeless. Sometimes I'll hear people say that, you know, the truths of Scripture are timeless. The gospel is timeless. And there is a sense in which that is true, that the, the, the gospel is not beholden to one, one era of history. It has implications expanding throughout history, of course. So I, I understand what people mean when they say that the gospel is timeless, but discipleship is always timely, not timeless. Because the life of discipleship means we, we must work out what it means to follow Jesus in the particular time and setting that we've been placed in. That is what discipleship looks like. There's no such thing as timeless discipleship, because the very nature of discipleship is that you are following Jesus in a particular culture. And what it looks like for you to follow Jesus in that culture will have broad similarities with Christians throughout the ages and with Christians all over the world. And yet there will be some distinctives based on the current moment that you find yourself in or the the current culture that you are a part of. And so I think the reason we don't ask the question, what time is it, is because we have a vision of Christianity and the gospel at times that we see as transcending time, which again is true, but it's not the whole truth about what what it looks like to, to, to follow Jesus. We, we've got to reclaim the sense of us being not only doing kind of incarnational ministry, as we like to talk about, where we are embodied and we are seeking to, to, to uh, represent Jesus in whatever situation that we find ourselves in. We also need to think of ourselves as in time, that we are not simply representing Jesus in a particular situation, but also in a particular time. And I think the reason that we haven't paid as much attention to time is because some of those other calendars, ways of looking at history, have often been smuggled into the Christian life without us knowing it. And without some attention given to the subject, I'm afraid we may look more like the world and resemble the history of, uh, resemble views of history that and friends and other people might have and we, that we might think otherwise. You know, some of the topics that you cover in This Is Our Time would have been really issues that wouldn't have even registered 50 years ago or certainly uh, farther back. So yeah, I, I, if anybody's interested, This Is Our Time is really a, a good way of unpacking some of those issues and speaking to our particular cultural context. Trevin, I want to switch a little bit and ask you about the end of your book, Eschatological Discipleship. I really appreciated the whole book. And near the end, though, I really appreciated the practical application to three different approaches to discipleship within the church. And uh, just to speak, uh, the one that really hit me through some of your blogs and through the book as well is what you call the general habits approach, which is, you know, usually we tell our people, if you want to grow, read the Bible, pray, and attend church, which are all good things. We want people to be doing that. But in the book and in your blog, you, you critique this approach or maybe evaluate that approach and outline some of what it gets right, but also some of what this approach misses. So would you be willing to unpack that a little bit? What's wrong or what could be added to the general habits approach? Yes. So 
One of the the things I enjoyed most about writing about these different conceptions of discipleship, you know, one that's more evangelistically focused, one that's more focused on habits and spiritual disciplines, and then sort of a gospel-centered approach, is that I wasn't actually taking a I wasn't taking a position on which one of these approaches is right and the others being wrong. It was more of a question of how would this worldview question of what time is it, you know, what I've called throughout the book, eschatological discipleship, how would that strengthen these understandings of discipleship? And when it comes to the to the one you're talking about, the general habits approach, there's a lot to commend to this understanding of developing personal piety that comes through spiritual disciplines and the formation of good and wise Christian habits that help mold us into the kind of people that God has created us to be. The the reason why I do think that that understanding of discipleship needs a dose of eschatological discipleship, or what we would say is the worldview question of, of what time is it, is because you can be personally pious and still complicit with all sorts of injustice. We've seen this happen throughout history multiple times. People who said their prayers and who were engaged in reading scripture or going to church, and yet were advocating for slavery, for example, in the in the South before the Civil War. Or you think about the pious Lutherans during the rise of the, the Nazis who just sort of went along and were not uh, didn't want to rock their boat at all, but were not willing to to really step out or oppose some of the, the rampant nationalism that took place in in the 1930s. These were people that were involved in some, at least at some level, in certain spiritual disciplines. So the reason why I think that worldview question, what time is it, or the reason why I think that, that how, how that can help in this, this understanding of discipleship is by, by making our habits more specifically subversive of dominant trends that would be happening in our moment or in our time. So one of the things I've I've been recommending, and this isn't in the book, but it's something I've done further reflection on in in the years since uh, I wrote this book, is that we need not simply general habits, such as read your Bible, pray, go to church. Those are good insofar as they go. We need subversive spins on those habits, or we need additional habits that are subversive. And so to use an example, you know, it, it may be that you, you think, well, I'm going to read my Bible every day, so at some point in the day when I have time, I'll just get on my app and I'll read a couple of verses and frame it and put it on my, my Bible app or whatever. That that may be, may be fine. That's, of course, better than, than nothing. But what would it look like for you to deliberately subvert something else with that habit? So what is, for example, the, the, the habit of uh, Scripture before phone? that you go to God's Word before you look at your phone in the morning. You know, that that's the first place you go. Now, there's nothing—I I don't want to, again, put this as a sort of a legalistic requirement on anyone or say that this is a biblical way to do things, but it's an example of deciding I am going to do something that reinforces this understanding that Scripture is the foundation of my life, that Scripture is what— is is what is going to guide my reflection on my life and things like that. Another example, uh, or an example that I used in a in a blog post, was a a pastor who every Sunday decided not to park in the pastor's spot near the office, but instead parked on the other complete other side of the parking lot in order to give the best parking spots to his to the people in his church. And as he would make that trek across the parking lot every week, he did that specifically 
in order to remind himself, I am a servant of my people. I am a servant of this people. Now, listen, there's nothing wrong with a pastor parking close to the church. There's no, it's not wrong or right here. This is a question, though, for me, is an example of a, it's a spiritual discipline. It's a habit that was formed with the deliberate intent to subvert a self-centered view of ministry that can easily crop up in any minister's heart, right? So when, when I talk about the difference between general and subversive spiritual habits. I'm, I'm not, I'm not dogging general habits. I'm simply saying, what additional edge do we need by asking that worldview question of what time is it? What are the particular temptations and challenges that I'm going to face as a as a Christian today? What can I do uh, as far as my own habits and uh, efforts at spiritual form, spiritual formation? What can I do to reinforce a God-centered view of reality? To reinforce the go- the, the gospel of grace? in my life, to, to reinforce my dependence on the Spirit. Those are the questions that I think go a lot farther than simply saying, just do the, the, the things that are just general to all Christians. We, we've got to specify, and again, go back to those timely, the, the timeliness of, of what it is that we're doing. What do I need in this particular time, in this particular culture, in order to be faithful to Jesus? You know, I was reading your series of blog posts and really tracking and a little bit nervous because I just written a book on habits, at least part of the book was on habits, and then uh, reading you talking about the general habits approach. And I remember when the, the blog post came out on subversive habits and so profoundly obvious, and I just appreciated so much your approach to that. And I remember reading that and just going, man, that makes so much sense. Anyone who wants to find that, I think can just go to Google and, and look up Subversive Habits and your name. It's it's certainly worth reading. Trevin, I want to switch a little bit to talk about your latest book, Rethink Yourself. And it almost seems to be that you've taken your doctoral research and written two books, This Is Our Time and Rethink Yourself, that at a popular level applies what you were uh, researching. What were you hoping to do with the book Rethink Yourself? Yes, so I, I mentioned, you know, eschatological discipleship is sort of the foundation from an academic standpoint for sort of a fountain for other thought, and This Is Our Time sort of came out of that. There's one chapter in This Is Our Time, though, that I told people as they were reading the book, I would say this particular chapter, it's called The North Pole and the Pursuit of Happiness, that's the most important chapter in that book, I believe, which is this, which is this chapter about expressive individualism, the, the understanding of life that, that says the purpose of life is to look inside yourself, to find out who you are, and then to look around and express yourself to the world. I, I did a chapter on that because I, I think that's one of the key things that we have to recognize as Christians if we're going to be faithful in this time. So that's where that started. And my my idea after I finished This Is Our Time, I felt very strongly that the next book needed to be a full-length treatment of just what I had spoken about in that chapter. And that's really where Rethink Yourself began. It began as a series of blog posts that I wrote about this, you know, what I mentioned before, expressive individualism. And it actually started as, I'm, I'm going to do this series of blog posts for church leaders, and then uh, once I help them understand expressive individualism, see see what it is, how to spot it, how to recognize it in your own congregation, how to preach the gospel in a way that resonates, but also counter, counters 
some of the aspects of that understanding of life. I, my, my thought was to write a book that would unpack those concepts further. And what happened instead was, as I started to write, I realized, no, I, I really believe the Lord is leading me to write a book that's even more accessible than blog posts, because it's really where I'm not even going to use words like expressive individualism, but I'm going to write it in such a way and to describe it in such a way that anyone can understand, can follow along, and that this would be the kind of book that a pastor would want to give to someone in their congregation, or even someone who's not in their congregation but has some sort of interest in Christianity, without assuming any biblical knowledge whatsoever, how would I be able to present the gospel in a way that is compelling to someone who has probably adopted this understanding of life without even realizing they've done so. And that's really what framed up the book, is I wanted to to write to, to, to people who would want to look deeply at their life and to think about their life in light of eternal and ultimate realities, and to to rethink the way that they've been looking at life and to bring a biblical lens to this question in a way that would not be immediately threatening or off-putting, but would would present the biblical view in a way that shows why the scriptural way of seeing life is so much more compelling and satisfying than what is offered to us by the world. And so that was the that was how the book came about. And my, my hope with it has been as much evangelistic as it has been discipleship focused, because my, my hope is that pastors will find it to be a, a useful tool in conversations they have with uh, with church members or with people far from God. It's such a timely book, too. I, when I was reading it, I was realizing how easy it is, even as pastors, to begin to preach as if the assumptions of expressive individualism are true. And very good book. Have you heard much evangelistic fruit from the book yet? So the very first review that I came across was actually by someone who is not a Christian. Wow. <laughs> so that has been my favorite. That's been my favorite conversation, actually, that I've had uh, since then has been with someone who was interested in the book and intrigued by it and being able to have some interaction with with that person. So the book is, it only came out a couple of months ago, so it's one of those things that I hope is going to be be useful for pastors and church leaders in congregations, especially once congregations start meeting again. I, it's one of those things that I hope will be uh, bearing fruit for many years, and I, I'm I'm still waiting to hear the story of the first person that has come to faith, at least in part because of being led through this book. Uh, I know of several situations where it's been used evangelistically, but I, I haven't seen, heard about a conversion story yet. But that's my that's my prayer and my, my ultimate hope for it. Yeah, I'll be praying for that as well. I can uh, envision this being a book that uh, churches could use within their small groups as well. It's a fairly short book, a very accessible book, and speaks to a lot of what I hear from people in terms of you know, I'm in downtown Toronto, and basically the the whole culture is is this whole look within yourself to find meaning and fulfillment. So I think your book does such a good job of talking to that. Uh, Trevin, if I could put you on the hot spot here, I want you to speak to a local church pastor who's trying to create a discipleship pathway within the church. And just looking for, how do I do this? I have a heart for discipling people. I want to see people changed and transformed in the image of Christ. And there's so much information about there, about discipleship, so many good resources. What counsel would you give that pastor who's trying to figure out how to lead their church in being discipled? 
Well, the good news I would say is that there, I, I would, my counsel would be, don't feel like you need to start this from scratch and do this yourself. There are tremendous, a, a tremendous number of resources out there, as well as different plans for discipleship that you can see from different churches, different pastors in different areas, following different different methods or pathways. Now, of course, a good pastor is, wants to contextualize other people's discipleship resources or program or plan to the setting that they find themselves in. It's not a one-size-fits-all kind of approach. But my recommendation would be to to take a good look at what other churches are doing, to take a good look at resources that are out there, and to begin to put this together in a way that makes sense for their own context. I would also say that the a lot of times our focus is on tools and resources, and a lot of our conversation has been about that. And I mean, of course, I'm passionate about that. I work, you know, I've at Lifeway, I've been in, instrumental with the Gospel Project, which is a curriculum that is designed to show how all the scriptures point to Christ. Rethink Yourself, we've just been discussing as a discipleship and an evangelistic tool. So as excited and as enthusiastic as I am about tools, I will say that there's no resource that is a silver bullet to making discipleship happen, because resources and tools are actually only effective really in the hands of people, people who follow Christ themselves and who model that. So I would simply say, as you're thinking about discipleship, you've got to think about what it looks like for for the Christian life to be modeled in a way that's compelling to other people. That's the the the, the question that I think often goes missing. We We think that you know, as long as I preach well, as long as I assign the right Bible study, as long as I train the right teacher, or I do the right devotional plan or whatever, that's that's sort of my job is done as a, as a discipler. And I want to say, no, it's actually more than that. Discipleship is caught as much as it is taught. There is certainly a teaching element to it, but there also is a modeling and an imitation model to it. And so the question that we as pastors have to wrestle with is, how is that sort of passing on the faith taking place in our congregation? How are we making that available? That's not something that just the pastor can do. That's got. That's where we have to have older mentoring the younger, those who are more mature in Christ, mentoring those who are just starting out their walk of faith. Those are questions that we have to wrestle with as well. So my encouragement to the pastor would be, yes, look to resources that are going to fit the particular context that you're in. Certainly make use of some of the many, many good tools that are available to you, but don't miss the the modeling and the imitation aspect of the Christian life, because that's vital for seeing disciples who are formed in Jesus's image. You know, everyone I talk to, including myself, uh, I, I really think that's it. I mean, I'm the product of hearing really good preaching, but then seeing people take an interest in me and model that up close where I could see how the gospel was being worked out in their lives. So that's that's so helpful. Trevin, I want to wrap up by asking you two questions. Uh, you're our first guest, so you're the guinea pig here. But I want to, God willing, ask all of our guests two questions just to wrap up. And the first question is this, what are you learning right now? Well, well, I mean that's a that's a question that immediately makes me think about the 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 books that I'm been most recently reading and I I actually have had some book recommendations come to me recently and so I've got a big stack of books on evangelicalism, the history of evangelicalism uh and even fundamentalism in the North American context. So I'm I'm reading on those. I just finished reading America's God by Mark Knoll, which gives a lot of 
just helpful historical context to understanding how intertwined evangelical religion and the founding of the United States was, and also how this democratization of Christianity during the 1800s, how much how much evangelicalism influenced America, but then also how much America influenced evangelicalism. So that's been that's been a fascinating study and just many things to ponder there. But I'm also I'm reading right now a book called To Flourish or Destruct by Christian Smith. He's a sociologist. Uh, he writes it, it's a it's a personalist theory of human goods, motivations, failure, and evil. And this has been a this is a Definitely an academic read, but one that has been giving me a lot of food for thought as to what it means to be a human person. He's he, Christian Smith is a Christian. He's writing, though, to other sociologists, so he's writing sort of from a, a secular vantage point, but he's making a case for a, a more robustly biblical understanding of human personhood than what you're going to find in many reductionist theories that are out there. And I'm I'm of the opinion that the the big battlegrounds for us in our generation are going to be over anthropology. What does it mean to be human? Uh, You see this in the gender debates. You see this in debates over end of life, beginning of life questions. You see this in some of the most fundamental worldview divisions that we have in our culture and society. And so uh, I'm trying to brush up a bit on what it means to to be made in the image of God? What does it mean for us to be human persons uh, who stand individually before God and yet who are also connected to the community that we are born into or the community of faith that we become a part of when we become Christian? That's so good. You know, this is going to be a dangerous question for me to ask because I think I'm going to be buying a lot of books talking to people like you. That's really good, though. Final question for you. What's encouraging you right now? You know, I think... One of the things that is most encouraging to me is that there's a lot of resilience among Bible-believing Christians, no matter what situations that are are being faced. And this year has certainly brought a share of suffering and sorrow and quite a few challenges, many that were challenges that even a year ago we would not have expected would be on the immediate horizon. And yet there is an endurance and a sense of perseverance and a resilience that I'm seeing in, uh, in many believers that is inspiring. I, I do know that there will be long-lasting effects from this pandemic, and I don't think we need to shy away from those. I think we need to recognize that those effects are going to be with us long-term and that we will have indeed most likely lost people who were perhaps not the most faithful offenders, but we're at least on the periphery of our of our churches, our communities of faith. At the same time, the core is there, and the core is still strong, and the core is still working to connect. And that has been one of the encouraging things to see over this last year, a year of revelation in many ways, giving us a glimpse of what reality looks like. And I, I'm, I'm encouraged when I, when I see that, when I see faithful people of God doing what the faithful people of God have been called to do, even when the circumstances have been so challenging as, as what we've faced in the, in the past year. Yeah, I, I think we're all agreed. We can't wait till this is over, and yet we trust that God is at work and definitely praise God for the resilience I see around me. So, Trevin, it has been so good to talk to you. Thank you for being generous with your time. Very grateful for your ministry. Oh, 
How can people follow Thank you? Thank so you? much, Daryl. Um, they can they can find me on the Gospel Coalition's website is where my my column is. If you just go to trevinwax.com, it will take you to my my regular column there. You can also find me uh, on online uh, at on Twitter or on Facebook, where I'm constantly tweeting or putting things on Facebook that will hopefully be helpful and edifying to, to people. Well, very grateful for your ministry. You have another book coming out shortly, right? I do. It's a, it's a little book that will come alongside uh, those who attend the Gospel Coalition's National Conference this year called The Multidirectional Leader. And it's a, it, it's, it's a little book about how we as church leaders can respond wisely to challenges that come from different angles, the challenges that come from every side. And um, I, I hope it's a, a book that will encourage the weary pastor who may feel like they are, are, are constantly being criticized from people from different perspectives, but give them some, some courage and consistency in the, the, the task that God has called them to. Well, very grateful for you, Trevin, and your gifts and for sharing them with us and through your writing ministry and for being here today. So thank you. Thank you so much, Daryl.